Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Before we get into today's guest, we have some really exciting news. We're collaborating with Ruthie Ackerman, who is an award-winning journalist whose work appears in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Refinery29, and more. We're launching a virtual writing workshop focused on invisible illnesses with Ruthie. This class is for anyone whose life is affected by invisible illness. That means people with conditions themselves, caregivers, doctors, healers, really anyone who has a hidden health story to tell. Together, we'll work to tell your story in an authentic way. Whether you've written about your health many times or never before, this class will help you find a powerful angle to explore. After six weeks, you'll walk away with tons of writing, the tools and techniques for taking your practice to the next level, and the confidence to get your work out into the world. And if I wasn't excited enough about that, health.com approached us and wanted to make the workshop offering even more amazing. At the end of the workshop, they're going to review the pieces that were written in the workshop and choose one to publish on health.com. Yep, you heard that right. One person will have their piece published on health.com from the workshop and receive $150 from Health Magazine. This workshop is six weeks in March and April 2020, and again, is for anyone in the world because it's virtual. To learn more and apply, go to bit.ly slash mvpwriting. That's bit.ly slash mvpwriting. We can't wait to hear from you and write with you. And now back to the show. Today's guest is Laura Bloom, who has turned her health diagnosis into her life mission in founding the Ellers Danlow Society. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. So happy to have you here. It's good to be here. So let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Okay. Well, as you said, my name's Laura. I'm in London most of the time, although with work, I'm usually in a different country most weeks. So I'm the president and CEO of the Ehlers-Danlos Society, and I do a lot of advocacy work, public speaking about patient engagement. Love it. Awesome. So walk us through the 12 years it took for you to be diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, EDS. <laughs> yeah. So I was diagnosed formally at 24 years old after a kind of long diagnostic odyssey of 12 years, like you said, which is actually the average length to diagnosis for most people living with EDS or HSD at the moment. So clearly not good enough. A lot needs to change. And of course, that was, you know, 16 years ago or so now. And actually still, that's the average time. So there was a really long period of neglect in this condition, both in research, progression, care management. Since the society launched in 2016, we've been really trying to heal that period of neglect. And for me, it was a kind of a lifetime of pain and unexplained symptoms that caused a lot of discomfort and just made me feel different from all of my peers. So I'd be a lot more tired. I'd have sprains. I fractured my wrist like 27 times, which 
in the end now I know wasn't actually to do with bone fragility. It was because of the tissue fragility all around the bones and my ligaments and tendons were just really destroyed and so obviously weren't supporting the bones. And that wasn't normal. Obviously, none of my other friends were experiencing that. I also have what's called a pectus excavatum, which is a marfanoid um, physical attribute, which you sometimes see in a connective tissue condition. I knew that wasn't normal. My parents knew that wasn't normal, but it was just like, yeah, she's got like a dent in her chest and that could explain things. But really, it was a lot of breathlessness, chest pain, which was put down to asthma and just no one really joining the dots until I actually ended up seeing a dietitian who for the first time put together everything, my endometriosis, my polycystic ovaries, my physical attributes that I have, all the dislocations, the subluxations, the chronic pain, the gut problems, and said, I think you've got Marfan syndrome. And so I'd never heard of that, Googled it, and a lot of it seemed to ring true. And I finally got into a genetics clinic and was then told that you don't have Marfan, but you do have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Wow. And so with those 12 years, were you misdiagnosed many times? I mean, were you told a certain thing and thinking, okay, I guess I have this? Or were you just sort of constantly hunting for an answer? It was a mix of both, really. I was certainly never given anything satisfying. So, for example, my right leg rotates in 40 degrees and I had had two surgeries on both my knees to try and fix the pain. And the surgeon I had, he was just, he was a really horrible, arrogant man. And I just kept going back and saying, I'm in so much pain and I'm looking at my leg and it doesn't look right. Would it not make sense that if it was in the right position, this pain would go? Yeah. And he was like, well, you know, if you're so convinced, let's hang you from the ceiling and put you in traction uh, for six weeks and see if it helps. And so at 15 years old, I laid in a hospital bed for that long. And at the end of it, he kind of just said, see, I told you it wouldn't help. Oh, and my it was just God. like, wow. And I remember actually post-diagnosis seeing him in a waiting room. I wasn't waiting to see him. And I said, excuse me, you won't remember me, but you really like screwed me up a little bit when I was younger and I've actually been diagnosed with something that explains the pain I had and he was like oh okay well you know great you've got your diagnosis just like nothing and that's just one it's an extreme example but of just such disrespect for a person's journey and pain and narrative of what they're going through and I think we see that time and time again in our community there's just no validation for what you're experiencing and often you see parents that have had a lifetime of going through it themselves and then seeing it echoed into their children. So they're fighting for themselves and their kids. They don't have a diagnosis. Their children don't. And it's just, you know, it makes things so much worth both physically and emotionally. You see a much bigger increase of mental health issues, depression, anxiety, which you completely understand when you look at the journey people have gone through. And we're seeing a real increase in, you know, what we're seeing now and understanding is PTSD as a result of that journey to diagnosis. So when you did receive that diagnosis, what was that like? And how did you decide, like, this is actually what it is? I mean, did you feel confident? Did you get a second opinion? What was that process like? It was weird because I was 24, so I wasn't a kid anymore. But I remember my mum and dad both came to the appointment with me, and that had never happened in my whole life. And I was in the back seat, which instantly made me feel like a child again anyway. <laughs> and, and we're driving through, you know, South London. The hospital was in Tooting, 
somewhere we'd never been. We, we're in northwest London. And so everything felt foreign about the whole experience. And I felt like a kid again. And I was really like, mom and dad, this is really scary. And But also really exciting. And I'd also been put on this really strict diet, I remember, from the dietitian to try and help symptoms. And that was really limiting. And I hated that. And I just wanted it was Christmas time. I remember it so clearly. And I just wanted some cake. And I wanted to eat fun stuff that you eat at Christmas time. And so we went through this appointment. It was like two hours long almost. And they asked questions to my parents. And they gave me a physical examination. They gave me an echo heart scan. And at the end of it, I just felt such relief. And it was like, wow. I wasn't going mad, you know, all those times I felt something, this woman in front of me is validating that that was because of this. And that just felt incredible. And for my parents as well, they were like, okay, we can believe her as well. And we don't have to feel like we should be pushing her towards mental health uh, help, you know, because they believed me, but they were also like, well, all these doctors are saying that there's nothing wrong. Do we need to worry that there's something wrong mentally? So it was a relief for all. And I remember we then went to, my parents at the time had a jewellery shop and it was their Christmas dinner. And we went and all the staff were there and it turned into a little bit of a celebration, actually. And, and my mum and dad ordered me every dessert on the menu. And um, it's such a clear memory. And we, I just sat and had spoonsfuls of every one. And it was like, now I know the answer and we can now make a plan forward. And it actually then began the journey because I then did get referred to Professor Rodney Graham in London, who is a very well-known EDS expert, who then reconfirmed that that is that he spent another hour and a half with me and went through almost the same to confirm again that that was the diagnosis and then I could start kind of decompartmentalizing all of the different symptoms so okay let's deal with the gut let's deal with the neck let's deal with the fatigue let's deal with the subluxations and it just evolved and I realized how much it was really a truly multi you know systemic condition and that although this one thing causes everything you actually just need to almost take that aside and deal with the symptoms that are, you know, the worst at that time. Because a lot of it is chronic and there's nothing you can take and there's nothing you can do. And that's taken me a really long time to realise. And although on paper now I actually have more wrong than I did then, I live a much better quality of life now than I ever have. I feel stronger and healthier because I've dealt with the self-management side of it, the holistic side of it, the mental side of it. And that is all so essential when dealing with a chronic condition. Yeah, for sure. What do you mean by dealt with? Like, what did you do? What did you shift when you got this diagnosis? How did things change for you over these years since then that you realized that you had to take control over all of this? I think simply put, I stopped waiting for a cure. I stopped waiting for an answer and for a tablet and for a surgery. When I was diagnosed, I think I'd had about 14 or 15 general anesthetics and surgeries at that point. Very few of them were a success. I'd had a tendon that had torn in my ankle, operated it on twice. Within months, it had retorn my knees. Anything tissue-related didn't work. Happily, my wrists were finally fused. And because it was bone surgery, they've been a joyous success ever since. But all of the tissue surgery, it just it never worked. It made things worse. I'd take so long to heal. And so that was step one, realizing that I stopped going to the doctor all the time because I knew what was wrong. There was very little that they could tell me. So I would go only when there was either something new and something that felt different and I needed to get a scan. But then, you know, I say that I'd go, I'd get a scan. I've never had a scan that's come back normal, you know, so I've got really severe hip pain and I had a scan. And I've got a glute tear and a label tear. So I then I had the answer. And then he said, I saw three different specialists that recommended surgery. 
But I know that that's not the answer and it won't work. So even though I got the reason for it, I had the scan, had it all validated, was told by three different people I needed surgery, they also all said, but I don't think it will be successful. But if you were a, you know, normal person, in inverted commas, that's what we would recommend. So it's just realizing that knowledge is power. So much of it comes from within. I do, you know, the annoying new age things of meditation, focusing, affirming. Every day I write a gratitude list. And the difference of me in the perfect state of eating cleanly, going regularly to the gym. And when I go to the gym, it's not hardcore exercise. It's pacing. It's slow. It's closed chain. Um, it's respecting all the different issues I have. When that shifted and changed, my life shifted and changed. That's incredible. Well, and I think the big thing that I'm hearing from you is really how much it's listening to your body. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I bring up so regularly on the podcast and in my own life of just knowing when something's not right and also knowing like how to navigate things to a certain extent, even if doctors are saying a different way. I mean, one of the things I thought about when you were talking about this was when I first was diagnosed with having the cyst in my lung in 2012, they did an x-ray and blood work and nothing came back. And my mom cried and was so happy. And I was 100% sure that whatever was going to come up on the CAT scan that we'd get the results on next day, that was going to be the answer. Mm -hmm. I knew my body. I felt something was off. It wasn't just bronchitis. And so it's that weird thing where like people can doubt you and question you, but you know instinctively, internally, something's, you know, going on here. Mm -hmm. So when did advocacy for chronic illness and obviously EDS become a priority for you and become your sort of life purpose? So I was a photographer. That's what I have always done. And my first degree was in entertainment and media. So my academic world, my experience had all been in that. And at the time when I was diagnosed, I was working at Getty Images. Um, and, you know, a lot of it was office based, but a lot of it was carrying heavy equipment around. And I really was struggling. Around 2007, I got diagnosed with postural tachycardia syndrome, and that really knocked me. I was actually in a wheelchair off and on for a year. I was on extremely strong medication. It really disabled me, and I had to find a new norm. And it wasn't, so if you remember, I was diagnosed in 2004. It wasn't really until that happened that around 2008, I went to a conference in the US for EDS people. I met people with EDS for the first time in my life. I was like, wow, this is incredible came back and I said to Professor Graham, I said, why don't we have that in the UK? And he was like, we do. I was like, oh, okay. So then I went on to Google and like on page five, I found the Ehlers-Danlos support group, called them up and it was an aunt's phone, didn't hear back for ages, called them again. And I was like, hey, I want to put on an event for you. You know, I went to this amazing conference and do you do them? And they were like, yeah, we've got a meeting coming up in a few weeks. And I went to this meeting, it was in a freezing cold church in Aldershot in the middle of the country. There were like six people in the room and I just left completely depressed and just like, God, this is what we have. And it was run by such well-intentioned people. They had EDS themselves, but they were older. They didn't have a lot of capacity. There was no staff. They were doing the best they could. So around 2009, I needed to leave what I was doing and I decided I needed to find a desk job that I really enjoyed. And I decided I wanted to be a spy. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into intelligence. I was going to take myself back to university and I was going to be kind of Jack Bauer, um, but the uh, in front of the computer version. <laughs> um, and that all made complete sense to me. I'm very driven. I, I remember I wanted to get into the best university in London, the University of London, and study there. And I just remember 
giving it my all at the interviews and miraculously I ended up getting accepted. I got full scholarship and I was studying in the evening 6pm till 9pm for four years. So it was a lot, you know, I was 30 years old almost at this point. It's a big decision to make. Um, huge commitment. A huge commitment. And also financially, I knew I had to bring in something to help me live over that time. You know, I, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm not living at home with my parents. I needed to cover rent. So I thought I'll try and look for a part-time job even or something. So I was doing that. That was happening. I wasn't starting until September. And around the end of the summer, I went to a gallery event at Getty Images. And I was talking to a friend of my friend's husband. So it was completely disconnected. We'd never met before. And we're talking. He was like, oh, I heard you left Getty. How come you left? And I said, oh, it's this really long story. I've got this condition you've never heard about. He said, try me. And I told him I had EDS. And he just stared at me and he said, my daughter died of that when she was 19 years old. And it was just like the stars aligned. Yeah, it was just crazy. It was insane. And he, you know, he was like, you remind me so much of my daughter. And we just talked for hours and hours. And he said, you know, I'm quite a wealthy man and I've been wanting to donate to the charity for quite a while. And I said, it's so weird. I called them and I wanted to set up an event for them. He said, well, I tell you what, why don't we both go meet with them and see what we can do? And I was telling him about this conference I'd been to, the EDNF conference in the US. And he said, just write down on a piece of paper everything you would want from a charity, from the minutiae to the massive. So I did. I write down hoodies, change your name to EDS UK, open a Facebook page, have events, sell pens. You know, I literally wrote everything. So we went to this meeting in this tiny church, <laughs> freezing cold. And in my animated way, you can't see this right now, but my hands are waving all, all over the place. And I was like, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And at the end of the meeting, this gentleman said, I know what I want to do with my money. I'm going to donate your salary for the next two years while you're doing this course. And you're going to do everything that you just said on that piece of paper. And I was like, hold up, hang on. No, 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 no. I do not know what I'm doing. I just know it needs to be done. And I don't know what to start. And he was like, that's all you need. You need to just know what needs to be done. And let's see what happens. And if at the end of your degree, you want to go off and be a spy, you have my blessing. There's no pressure. Hopefully at that point, you would have gotten to a little bit of a, a more robust stage so it can be sustained. And so January 2010, a decade ago, I started at EDS UK working from a desk at the end of my bed. I was studying four nights a week till nine o'clock at night. And when I left in 2015, we were one of the biggest EDS charities in the world. And I had eight members of staff. And I got my degree, decided a spy life was not for me, although I always say this would make the best cover story, so who knows? Um, <laughs> it could happen one day. Uh, yeah, um, and life is just not what I planned, and I'm grateful for it every day. I cherish what I do. I'm so privileged to do what I do. And when I started, it's not like this was the goal, because if you would have told me 10 years ago I'd be traveling around the world, we'd have a global organization, I'd be able to actually think about being able to save to buy a house one day. You know, because although he was generous and donated, I was earning like three times less than I was earning at Getty at 30 years old. You know, I've had to make a lot of compromises, but it's paid off and it's amazing. And I, I love what I do every day. That's an incredible, incredible story. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. 
No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace, through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's betterhelp.com slash made visible. And now back to the show. So can you talk about what it is that you have done for the last 10 years and the kind of advocacy work that you've done for EDS? Sure. Well, every day and every day still, genuinely, I'm driven by what would have made my life easier all those years ago when I was diagnosed. And then you pick up stories and you have visuals of people that you then do it for. So every day, every day, I have his daughter in my mind who passed away and I do it for her. I walked the marathon in 2011 and I had her name on the back of my vest. I've become close to people who have passed away, some through suicide, some through vascular EDS. It becomes for them. You know, 13-year-old girl that I found out about who hung herself because she had no validation and she thought she'd be a burden. For her, I do it, you know. And every year, every month, it becomes there's a different need. And I think when I was at EDS UK, it almost felt like we were putting a what you guys call a Band-Aid, how I say a plaster, on this open wound. And we were just trying to just stop the bleed. And I realized that so much more needed to be done to start to really heal that wound. And it needed to be done collaboratively and it needed to be done globally. And there was no one there doing it. And so very much like five years previous to, okay, if not me, then who? I felt confident that EDS UK was a place where I could walk away and it could stay thriving and it could, you know, continue to do what it was doing, supporting the UK community. And I approached what was then EDNF in the US and said, hey, guys, fancy setting up an international organization? It's got a very long story short. It took about a year working out how we were going to do it. And the society was launched in May of 2016. And it was a that first year was a slow start. I kind of figured we'd like we're here. We've done everything the community said we needed. And the donations were slow to come in. And then suddenly, very quickly in 2018, everything changed overnight. We got two, then three separate million dollar donations. We set up our global registry. We've got events and conferences all over the world. We're giving out grant funding. You know, these academics and clinicians had never had a place to go to, to apply for funding, to progress this condition. We've got a free phone helpline in pretty much countries all over the world. So when people are struggling, they've got somewhere to go. We've set up virtual support groups. So when people are too sick or they can't afford to get to an in-person meeting, they can just dial into a Zoom and talk to other people like them. Sometimes our staff are on that call with two people, but it doesn't matter because it helps those two people. Sometimes we'll have 40 people. We will keep doing what we're doing no matter how few or many people there are. And so we still do the little small things that help individuals day to day and the really big broader things where we hope will make an impact for the generations to come in front of us that hopefully won't have to wait 12 years for a diagnosis. That's awesome. And so how are people finding you guys? Is it, you know, someone finds out that they know someone who has EDS and they say that they got support through you guys? Is it very much word of mouth? 
It is. Um, something else that was new for us this year as well is there were celebrities that came out and started speaking about living with this. Lena Dunham, Jamila Jamil, Sia. That was huge awareness for us. We never know quite how people, we try and track it like any nonprofit does. You know, how did you hear from us? But I think it is reputation. People are impressed with what we're doing. And equally, actually, there's tiny, tiny proportion, you know, under 10 people who are really challenging everything that we're doing because... It's like suddenly that there's something here and people are scared by it, you know, wanting to see all our policies and procedures and questioning how we're spending money. And that's something I was thrown by and I didn't expect. And it's good that we're forced to always ensure, you know, that there's full transparency because every nonprofit should do that. It's hard when there's, you know, a little bit of trolling along with that and it's negativity. But, you know, it keeps us doing what we're doing for the people that are negative to us and positive. We're there for a whole community, professionals and patients, their caregivers. And we're just going to keep doing what we're doing every day to try and improve the life for everyone living with this and affected by this. You mentioned the 12 years numerous times, and I'm wondering if that number has shifted and why it is that it's taking that long for so many people. The simple answer is there's so few clinicians able to diagnose. And even when people are being diagnosed, there's so few managing and treating them. So in April of last year, we set up something called EDS Echo. And that is an education kind of tele-mentoring platform where we encourage professionals from all over the world into every discipline to dial into monthly Zoom calls and share de-identified case studies. It's all teach all learn. And it's from Project Echo that was launched in New Mexico for hepatitis C. Mm. So successful that it's branched out. And we were the first rare disease to actually take it on. It's been unbelievably successful. We've now branched out to have a vascular EDS Echo, an allied health EDS Echo. Um, we're doing pediatrics, orthopedics, the rarer types. We've also got an advocacy echo where we're training up advocates to be able to go out and help raise awareness. And our target is to have a thousand new EDS experts by 2022. Two. And I thought you were going to say 2020. Yeah, I'm like, I, I have there. to remember if it was 2021 <laughs> or 2022, but I think it's 2022. And we, I think we're going to hit that. You know, we're really building that. And once we start to have more professionals willing to diagnose, that will then have a domino effect and more people will be diagnosed and then cared for and managed and treated. But remember, we've got 20 years of neglect to heal. That doesn't happen overnight. We've been doing what we're doing for since 2016 and really in reality 2017 when we had the funding really to do some projects and campaigns. So three years, you know, we're not going to fix 20 years in three years. Talk to me in 20 years, and I hope we're in a really different position, even five years. Things are changing rapidly. We're, so when I was diagnosed, there were six types of EDS. When we published the new criteria in 2017, there's now 13. Even in that space of time, we've got another type, 14. And we're doing a, another look at the classification in time for our 2021 symposium, where I have no doubt there will be more types. So it is evolving. It is changing. I think it's just going to take some time for the community to feel that impact. What specifically are your goals for the next five years? So to increase the amount of professionals willing to diagnose, manage and treat, because there's actually no such thing as an EDS expert. It's just someone willing to actually learn and, you know, a GI person, a cardiologist, a neurologist, a geneticist, just understanding and learning about the condition. So that's a big one. More funding. We'd like to do a minimum of a million dollars a year to give out to grants. We'd like to get to lots of different countries. We've got a five-year event plan, which touches on Singapore, India, America, Canada, Europe, going to be in Israel in April this year, Australia, New Zealand. So we're really getting out there to touch as many lives as we can and just become really sustainable financially. 
it's hard to attract funding to this because you go out there, you say to people, EDS, HSD, and they're like, what's that? I'm going to give to mental health or cancer care or heart health, you know. And so you're reliant a little bit on your community to start with. And in the US especially, it's a lot of individual donors. So we haven't really had the capacity up to this point to apply for grants, but we're doing that in a big way as well going forward. So to become sustainable, be here for the long haul and just give as much hope to our community and also the medical professionals that we're here to stay. And how do you manage your health on a day-to-day basis with all this travel and all that you're working on? It's hard. I mean, one big shift that happened when we grew and when I started EDS UK versus when I was diagnosed is suddenly the way I cope became public and under scrutiny. So the way I live my life kind of pisses a lot of people off, you know, oh, Lara, eat the right food, go to the gym and your EDS will be cured. And it's like, well, no, never said that. But people get annoyed that I am putting a positive message out there because they feel like it will diminish their chances even more of getting access to care management validation. And that's not the case. You know, there's people out there living with cancer that live incredibly positive lives and that's never questioned. So that's a real frustration. That's hard. But that's life when you're out there in the public eye. See that I have to take on board. And because of that, I have to really even more focus on my own mental health, my own self-care and making sure I'm not looking at social media all the time because as much of a blessing, it's a big curse. But I really, for me, key is movement. I try to get to the gym at least three times a week. I try and eat as clean as I can. It's so hard traveling, so incredibly hard. Routine often leads to good results and lack of routine is hard and that's what's there when you're traveling. So it's tough. I have an incredible support system. I have an amazing wife, amazing parents and sister and friends who all help it become possible and amazing colleagues and an amazing team. We've got like 20 members of staff now. When we started just a few years ago, there were two of us. So it takes a village. It really does. This isn't just all on me in any way. It wouldn't be possible without so many people. And I'll continue to drive that vision and, and keep pushing. But my 2020 resolution and goal was to really focus much more on self-care. So again, not just our organization, but me as an individual can become sustainable and be in it for the long haul. When you say eating clean is challenging for you when you travel, what does that mean? Is that because when you're home, you're able to cook at home and you know what you're dealing with? Tell me more about that. Yes. So obviously when you're at home, you can have control over what you're eating. You can make sure, you know, with the ingredients that there's not loads of sugar going into it, loads of salt, although sometimes salt is good with our autonomic issues. Um, But also every meal is usually a working meal. So even this morning I had a working breakfast meeting and they tend to be three courses. And yes, you could order one, but then you're not being sociable with everyone. So you're eating indulgently, you know, more than you would do when you're traveling. And that bit you can control because you can have a salad or you can have a fish. The hardest part for me to control is when you're at a conference or an event, which is, I would say, 70% of the time. And you go to the lunch and it's a platter of sandwiches. And it's like, okay, you know, I'd like to avoid carbs where I can. I don't know what's in the sandwiches and it's just really hard. And then the snack is like a cereal bar or some crisps or chips. You know, it's like, it's just so unhealthy. And then the, the afternoon snacks, a platter of cookies. And it's just like, well, I could go hungry 
or I could eat and then feel terrible. And so it's really hard and it requires such discipline to forward plan and think, okay, well, I should take some food in, but it's expensive as well. It's it's really hard and I don't really have the answer at the moment. The conference thing is really interesting. I used to be in event production. So I remember that being the case when we had like full day conferences and even things that I've attended and just being fascinated by what they serve and what they think is acceptable but it's probably the cheapest option. And so unfortunately, people's health is not typically the priority in that situation when they're talking numbers. But it's crazy. Um, So you mentioned that you have this really great support system. Has that always been the case? And what was it like when you received your diagnosis at 24? Did you tell friends? Did it feel natural to sort of say, here's what's going on and here's what I'm, you know, navigating now? My parents and family and friends have always been fantastic. I think even though they're fantastic, very few people haven't really understood what it was. So it's very sporadic EDS. One minute I could be with everyone in the club and dancing and having a great time and the next day I can't lift my head and they're like, you were okay yesterday. And they hear this EDS thing. It's like, oh, you know. And even if they don't audibly make that noise, I see it in their face. And so that's hard, but you just have to be strong enough to accept that and give them some slack that it's really hard to understand. So there's that element to it. Relationships have definitely been hard. My issue with it is feeling like I'm a burden. I can't, you know, I'm gay, so I've always been with women in relationships and I guess I'm more of the butch one and so there's this want to carry the bags and, you know, be the strong one and, you know, bless my poor wife who's just... (laughs) so tiny she's the slaps everything you know it's it, all the cases and you know at Christmas she was like had this huge Christmas tree on her shoulder and I'm just like you know scurrying <laughs> along behind and that's you know if I let that get to me it's really hard honestly it's like I want to be the protector and the strong one and um and the reality is you know I put the washing on it's like it's 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 whatever but there's no right and wrong and you, you just discuss have to... it together yeah so like certainly when we were together I we had to work through some stuff where my issues came out certainly being maybe more needy and more annoying with it because you're worried that they're going to run away because it has been a problem in past relationships. You know, my last significant relationship, I remember when it ended and I kind of stood on the doorstep and said, did my health have a lot to do with this? And she was like, yeah, in honesty. And that took a lot to get over that and to be have the strength and the bravery to do it again because it's so vulnerable when you give your heart to someone. It's like the scariest, most vulnerable thing you can do. I'm very lucky. We've been together six years. We're married. We've been married for two and a bit years. And she's also, you know, she doesn't take my shit. She's just like, go to the gym then if you're in pain, you know? Why are you eating that? Because, you know, she doesn't let me wallow in it. And that's good for me. That helps. But equally, if I say something hurts, she knows that that means it hurts. And she'll be like, what can I do? You know, we have a dog. So if my hip's really bad, she'll go and walk the dog instead of me. And But then if I'm just being lazy, she's like, you walk the dog because that makes you feel better. You know, so it's a really good balance that took, you know, a, a lifetime to find. It's not easy. It really isn't easy. So I think things like dating, you know, sex, sustaining love and a relationship and chronic health isn't discussed enough. Anything specific that you want to make sure is addressed? 
I mean, there's actually this um, organization I have the joy of meeting wonderful people and a guy called Seth set up something called Our Odyssey and it's focused on people living with rare diseases, dealing with, you know, young adults, dealing with all those issues. And I think it's great that they've got that set up because it's so important. And I think I would love to see a safe space. So we've got our conference coming up this summer and we're working with our Odyssey to have a whole track dedicated to young adults talking about relationships, dating, sex life, all of those things that are really kind of taboo subjects that have to be discussed. You're living with this for the rest of your life. You need to learn how to dance with it. You know, it has to be something that's daily, consistent and something that you take on board for now, tomorrow and, you know, everything else in between. I love that. I will definitely check that out. Maybe he needs to be a guest on the podcast. I think so. Yeah. Seth, you're up next. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. How can people learn more about the Ehlers-Danlos Society? So you can go onto the website, www.ehlers, which is E-H-L-E-R-S for sugar, hyphen Danlos, D-A-N for November, L-O-S for sugar, danlos.com, ehlers-danlos.com. And if you go onto pretty much any social media platform and type that in, you will find us equally with me. You can find me at larabloom.com, type in Lara Bloom to anything and my annoying face will pop up, no doubt. <laughs> I have to say, there haven't been many episodes where I'm like, oh, I wish I had video, but you are so someone who speaks with their hands. That <laughs> I, I really wish there am. was video. I know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And we'll be sure to include links and everything in show notes so you guys can check that out. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Amanda Grisillo for the design.